Hello and welcome to Qualia Game Talk. In this episode, I talk with Andy's Molek and his research into gameplay amongst people, communities, countries. He is a radical thinker and someone that has a lot of knowledge to do with fractals and um, mathematics. Very interesting talk. I hope you enjoy. Welcome everybody. Today I'm going to be speaking with Andy Zmolek. Is that how you pronounce your name properly? Maybe I should check that. Yeah, first. yeah. It, well, you know what it is, is in English, we have this thing about Z and M shouldn't yeah. be next to each other. But yeah. we don't have a problem if it's S. So if you pretend that it's an S, you'll get it right every time. Smolek. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then after a while, you'll get more comfortable going je, right? Smolek yeah, uh, yeah. is, I think, how you properly pronounce it. But most most of the time, you know, I, I if, when I grew up in uh, uh, in the States, right, it, it really just became Smolek. So where is the name actually from? It's it's Czech. I so I basically yeah. I'm fifth generation American that has half of my ancestors from England, you know, good Spencer's, Richards, McDonald, right? And then the other half are from four different cities in the Czech Republic. Right. And there's a lot of amazing brains have come out of the Czech Republic. So uh I'm trying to that, think of well, hopefully that that that's a good thing for me i i i, I don't know i you know i think my, my uh the, i do like the word bohemian <laughs> even though i have really no idea what it means besides the american definition which which is you know basically a slightly intellectual hippie yeah i think that sums you up beautifully <laughs> i like that a lot i like that a lot someone with big ideas who really understands the details. Um, we were just talking a little bit about how the mind works when you look at an image to get triggered. Is that something you could elaborate a little bit on? Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny because we like to believe in the illusion that we are seeing what's coming through our eyes, but we're not, right? In fact, the fastest muscle in our entire body uh, or the fastest group of muscles are the ones that are controlling eye movement, right? And so if you look carefully, and, and they've done lots and lots of studies, right? What, you'll see that the eye is constantly scanning, right? Now, you couldn't possibly keep up with the flow of information that, that's coming from all that scanning. So what you have is essentially, think of it as kind of a neural screen in your head and that on that neural screen right it's it, it, an illusion is maintained right and the, the the first thing is um color is painted on that screen we can only actually uh kind of zero in on one color at any given point in time so the colors that you think you're sensing simultaneously are actually just painted on that neural screen and the reason why when you move your head, the screen seems to move with you, right? That's a phenomenal illusion that's made possible by all, all this, uh, all of the sensors in your inner ears, right? And so when, when you turn or rotate or whatever, 
what you're doing is 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 basically causing the frame around that neural canvas to shift right um, and and then you, you, what you've got in fact if if you if you're very very careful or you have the right uh, you have a kind of a wrap around uh, sunglass that kind of helps right you kind of reach back and just see you know what's the furthest back you can go on either side and still detect and really what you can only do is detect motions right what you'll find is you you you, you can even do a test right where you have somebody hold up right at the edge of your periphery vision uh, different colored cards, right? And uh, as long as you try to keep your eyes facing forward, you will not be able to resolve the color that they're holding up. I was right? just testing that with my hands. So I did what I put it to the peripheral and then I kept looking at the screen you and my hand is true, it disappears. But if I move it a bit, my eye is, is sort of, I don't know, is it picking it up? Yeah, your, just... your ability to detect motion yeah. is 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 a is using a different part of the uh, the structure in the back of your eyes than your ability to detect color. So you can think of you've got a black and white feed that is really really sensitive to motion, mm. right? And then you've got the, these color feeds, and, and and the interesting thing about color is it's it's looped in our head. And what I mean by looped is color itself, you know, it's an electromagnetic spectrum. It's, it's linear, it, it goes from infrared to ultraviolet, right? But we, we, have this, um, we have this thing in our heads that we call purple. <laughs> and it doesn't exist on the electromagnetic spectrum, right? You, 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 you get to you know, deeper blue and violet and, and whatnot. But what purple is, 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 is color that activates on both ends, this side, and this side right and we've looped it together and and so that's that's why the color wheel is coherent to us right because what we've done and that's why process color works by the way it's 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 a three color system right that it, it can't perfectly reproduce all the color but what it's able to do is give us pretty good approximation right if if we had if we had perfect inks right the, uh, and and this is also this is an interesting thing with displays right because on on paper you're you're using subtractive color right and on your displays you're using additive color both of those are ultimately approximations mm -hmm. yeah and and so you've got you, you've got this scanner going on all the time. You've got all this parallel processing happening. Um, there's a phenomenon called blind sight that's super super fascinating, right? So you take people who are uh, th th there's uh, been a connectivity problem between the sensor part of th th their visual input. And the, you can think of it as a screen painting, right? So they can't, they, they can't see. In fact, in some cases, it's really interesting. You know, they, they only see one half of the visual field, right? But you can, you can put obstacles in a, in a hallway, for instance, and they will more or less, you know, far better than chance, right? 
navigate around those obstacles, even though they can't consciously see them. Yeah, I remember reading an article recently where probably up until quite recently, people with this problem would actually have their eyes removed because they were getting some kind of sores or um, issues around their eyes. So the doctors thought, you know, it's better to remove their eyes rather than um, treat it because they can't see anyway. And as a result, these people's quality of life went rapidly downhill because they were no, no longer able to use that sense. So, so what is this called again? Where the, the, the uh, blind sight, blind yeah. sight, right? Yes. So where, where you've, where you've got, um, uh, in, in many cases, it's, it's a partial visual field that they can see, but the rest of the visual processing system is working. And so there's a lot of reflexive actions that demonstrate that the uh, initial processing is working fine. <laughs> and you know, it's, it's, a, it's a really fantastic thing in, in this age, right? Where we're, we're basically trying to deconstruct the human biomachine, right? We, we've got all this, you know, heady, uh, you know, artificial intelligence, right? We like to call it. And, and you know, I, I suppose that, uh, you know, some people like to call it artificial stupidity, right? Because it's, it, you know, we, we, can, we can be uh, dumb really fast, right? Uh, but the, the interesting thing about it for me is if you look at what humans have been able to create in terms of artificial life forms, we've been doing it for years. Right. It's just that, you know, we we don't really think of the artificial life forms that we create as life forms. Right. You know, we, we, we call them institutions and corporations and nations. Right. But they're they're artificial life forms. They, they, they have very sophisticated behaviors. Completely constructed by humans. Yes, exactly. They, they, they were born from humans. They, they, they know how to reproduce, right? And um, oh, let me just see here. So by reproduce, you would say that one organization spawns another organization. And that's what you mean by reproduction. Uh, yes. Okay, just just had to confirm that my afternoon plan is still on, so okay. it is. <laughs> I mean, this is the wonderful thing about uh, you, you know m- multitasking as well, right? What does it mean to multitask, right? Because we are keeping a bunch of things um, going on in, in our kind of automatic thinking all the time, right? And what we can think of when we when we consider okay what are emotions i think the best way of understanding emotions is that if you look at this embodied brain right so you have to have a brain and a body right if you look at it as an extremely sophisticated supercomputer right a a bio supercomputer right there are, there are two main things going on. There's two main interactions. You, you, you can think of the console or the command line 
as the conscious part of the brain, right? And so we are constantly writing this, I like to call it a narrative loop, right? This is the story that we're telling ourselves uh, moment by moment about what's going on. Ah, I'm recording a podcast. I'm on a Zoom call. I'm uh, uh, talking to a camera. And so I, you know, and then I expect to see a picture of myself on, on the other side, right? And that feedback loop kind of tells me that the thing that I think I'm doing is probably what I'm doing, right? But I'm, I'm not interacting with reality. I'm interacting with the model in my head of what I'm doing. I'm making predictions about what's going on and what kinds of things might happen next, right? And you know, if, if I'm having this conversation with you and, and suddenly my body just feels completely soaked, right? And I'm not expecting that, then I'm, I'm going to have to have a way of kind of having, having that awareness pop up into my conscious being, right? And that's going to come in the form of an, uh, an emotion, right? It, 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 it's, uh, you know, at first it's, it's going to be this kind of odd, curious feeling that, you know, I'm sensing something that I wasn't expecting, right? why do I feel cold and wet, right? I'll probably feel the, uh, the some of the evaporation happening and I'll, 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 I'll kind of feel exposed because the, the wind is wicking off that moisture, right? And, and, and then I'm gradually gonna come to an awareness that something has changed, right? And if, if I'm looking at myself in, in the, uh, in, 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 on the camera, right? If I don't see like glistening from sweat and I don't see like a, a, a dark patch where my clothing seems darker than what I remember it, right? Then, then I'm going to start getting some curiosity uh, because I don't see any, I, you know, I, I feel something, but it doesn't match with what I'm seeing, right? So those models aren't matching up. So over time, those emotions are come, gonna come in. now. As I'm laser focused in on the present moment, right? It may be, take me a while before I pick up on those emotions and uh, and and act on them and bring the, the those emotions into my narrative loop and and figure out what's going on. You know, as it turns out, I, uh, ha having made the suggestion that I'm wet, you know, I, I've I've got lots of things telling me right now. No, you're you know, you, you feel very dry. If, if anything, you're too dry right now. <laughs> Fix it. <laughs> you know, get, get something to drink, right? Yeah. The, the, and the suggestion of wet caused a whole bunch of automatic processes to happen in the background. That's kind of validating what's really going on. I'm checking the visual uh, field in the background. And, 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 and then it, uh, I become aware of the fact that it's, it's very warm and dry here where I am, and, and maybe I need some water. So what, what have those emotions done? Well, they've summarized all this incredible parallel processing that's been going on in the background, right? And then eventually, you know, that, that kind of pops into my conscious awareness. And when I decide to pick that up and add it to my narrative loop, then it, it it kind of merges into my my conscious existence. Mm. 
Yeah. And, yeah. and so we've yeah. got this, you can think of it as it, my, my narrative loop is in the world of the discrete, right? I use words, those words have, at the very least, they have a private meaning to me, they feel meaningful, right? And most likely, when I use those words, they're going to evoke similar sense in those with whom I'm speaking, if they hold similar cultural frames to my own, mm. right? And this is where culture matters, right? Because I know that you know English as a language, right? We have a concept of language and uh, we, we, we name our languages. And even though I know that your exposure to English is English English and mine is American English and I'm specifically aware of different spellings between the two and you know different different words right you you you, you say bell end to a American and they really don't associate it with what a Brit would right you and We'll leave it up to the, the audience to, uh, to investigate that. I, can, I mean, I can provide a direct translation, right? Americans would just say dick, right? <laughs> and and the, the other interesting cultural thing, right, is if, if I'm comfortable with you as a friend, if I'm friendly with it, uh, with, with, with you, uh, 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 I, I would not hesitate to use that word in English culture to and, and do it jokingly, right? So uh, uh, Americans, you know, they, they you know, an American uh, in general wouldn't wouldn't say, you know, you're being a dick, except to somebody that they were very close with, and and the same is true, right? But if an American uh, said to uh, a friend, you know, quit being such a bell end, right? That would not even compute, you know, unless the person that they're talking to had been exposed to British culture, right? And in that case, you know, it might provoke a laugh, especially if neither of them uh, has uh, British culture as, as a primary frame, right? M maybe they've been studying uh, uh, differences between American slang and British slang, and, and so it turns into a joke, right? But think, think about, you know, how do we go through this process of framing, right? How do we frame the context, right? Uh, something that um, I, I was told early on about, you know, interpreting uh, interactions in British culture was, you know, what, what whatever you feel like is happening to you as, as an American, right, um, you, you should assume that the signaling that you're getting from your British counterpart is exactly the opposite of the way you, they feel, right? Mm. So if they're being excruciatingly nice to you and generous and, uh, and, and, you know, they, they sound like they couldn't be more pleased or proud of, uh, of what you're doing, right? That, that, that's a sign that you're really pissing them off. 
I can think of something similar with Russians, which is probably the exact opposite of Americans. You know, when you meet someone in America, you want to have a big smile, you want to show a lot of teeth, you want to be happy and positive. Yeah. You do the same in Russia. They think there's a joke. They think you are laughing at them. They take it very personally and completely. Or worse, if 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 they if they see you going around with a goofy smile on your face, right? They assume that that you have a mental health issue, right? <laughs> yeah. And and, and I, my 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 wife is smiling knowingly in the background, even as I say this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I I've got a, a Russian influence partner and. Quite often I just walk in and smile at her and she's like, what are you smiling at? Like, what have I done? And I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm just smiling at you. <laughs> you know, I can remember vividly. Uh, so so I, 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 um, I, I managed to marry my wife in spite of the fact that, that I literally broke her back. Uh, uh, yeah, we were on a small sledding hill and I gave her a push down the hill uh even though she was saying no 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 and and she she uh, she fractured her tailbone and we had to go to the hospital and you know because you know i was a foreigner there obviously didn't uh, didn't speak much russian you know just enough you know i'll, I'll say when they ask in russian uh i'll, I'll say choot choot just a little i speak just a little and uh so we, we get to the hospital and she's, um, you know, interacting with the staff and she's really, really getting worried because everybody is being so nice to her. And, and it was completely different from her expectations, right? And, and so it took a long time for her to kind of come to terms with the fact that, right, uh, she thought, okay, they, they must be trying to take advantage of me somehow. So, but I mean, the funny thing was it, when you look at the different healthcare systems, right? It, it, we we spent maybe a hundred euros for a scan, um, like a um, was it an MRI? I think, right? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, just unthinkably cheap <laughs> in comparison, right? Uh, it, because you know her her healthcare was covered, but they wanted to uh, to, to make extra sure. And and so they said, well, if, if you'd like, we can we can do this scan for 100 euros. And 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 of course, we were both, yeah, you know, we that would be at least a, a, you know 2,000 in the states, right? And I can only imagine uh, the hoops that you'd have to jump through with 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 NHS. Probably with with uh, with her condition, uh, she, she'd probably get it here after you know so many hours in the. Uh, uh, A &E. <laughs> So just to clarify, um, her expectations of being in a Russian hospital were surprising because she went with you as a foreigner. Yes, because what you know the, these were these were professionals, mm. right? And they were also sufficiently culturally sensitive to understand that I was kind of lost in the whole process, and so and they could tell that I cared a lot uh, for my wife, and and so they were they were really, really nice to her. And she wasn't used to that kind of treatment uh, in you know, what we would call the emergency room. You, you had to remind me, we call it A&E, right? Uh, right, here in the UK. And you know, so it, you know, we had some interesting conversations about this. She's, she, she's gotten her um, second master's in psychoanalysis. So we, we, we love diving into these conversations about 
you know, what, what is human nature like? Uh, and, you know, what, what, what's reality like? What, what are these cultural frames like that, that really define who we are? And of course, for both of us, we are reframing uh, our own individual identity loops by, you know, taking, you know, me with my American cultural framing and her with her Russian cultural framing and bringing that into London, which I, I personally feel like London is the most multicultural city on earth. I have, a, I have a hard time arguing, you know, there are only a few cities that can even uh, make a strong case for that, you know, maybe Paris, uh, New York is probably as close as it gets in North America, uh, or Vancouver in Canada, perhaps. Mm, uh, yeah. But, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's really a an amazing melting pot of different cultural frames. And you, you know, you can't help but cross paths just on an everyday walk, right? I take my son to school in the morning. And, um, you know, if we weren't scooting by at, uh, at, at, at high speed these days on Regents Canal, uh, uh, you know, it used to be we would go by um, where, where he would be on his small scooter and, uh, and I'd be walking. And we'd hear a good five or six different languages uh, as we passed, you know, a dozen or so people uh, on on the way there, right, and, and and that's normal, and nobody was in any way surprised by the, the existence of all these languages kind of thrown together in one place. And so, with that, we we start to kind of deconstruct what's what's the nature of culture. What, what do these frames do for us? Right. What, why are they essential? Right. You, you quickly discover if you, if you try to remove all your cultural frames, right? you can't do it, by the way. But if you try, you, you very quickly discover that there, you need some kind of anchoring. You know, even if it's a, uh, an anchoring that you yourself are inventing. Right. And. You know, just just like we've discovered in physics, you 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 can't you can't anchor solely on a Newtonian view of the world, and you can't anchor solely on a quantum view of the world. I, I mean, in theory, you could, but it it's just incalculable, right? There there are so many things that are worthy of calculation that are just beyond the, the, the reach of any computer we could construct if, if you try to do all this at a, at a quantum level. So we need a really good algorithm that unlocks the data we need? Well, they have to be scale invariant algorithms, right? And, and this is the problem. We're used to thinking about things at a particular scale, right? And we... we we're very oriented around, you know, here's, here's the thing that uh, exists right now. Here's, you know, here's what's going on. Here's, here's where I want things to go. And then trying to find a direct path there when re reality is more fractal, right? And what I mean by fractal is that the, the, the path from here to there 
is as detailed and complicated as we are willing to zoom in on and, and see and understand, right? Reality is infinitely complex. It, it, it cannot possibly fit in our heads. So what we have to do is create simplified models of reality and, and then try to be less wrong about applying the models that we use so that we have a better and better predictive value for the uh, programming that, that we set for ourselves, right? Because we are self-programming beings. And I guess this has a ripple effect because a lot of these uh, fractal patterns or algorithms are learned in childhood. So if we are- Those are our anchors. Right. So if we've got one that's just plain wrong or incorrect, it can have a ripple effect throughout the rest of our life. Well, the, the difficulty is um, when you start to say wrong, right? How do you define wrong, right? If, if you say unhelpful, right? You, you can definitely converge on something and say, okay, this is unhelpful. When you say wrong, how do you define, you know, what's the basis of that moral judgment, right? That's a moral so, judgment. I guess it's not getting the result you want. So um, I maybe I'm having a conversation with someone and my algorithm says that at this point I need to get angry in order to get my result. But actually I should have backed off and calmly requested it and I probably would have got the result I wanted. So I would say that's what I meant by wrong, but you're quite right. To, yeah, to, effective is a, probably yeah. a, a good word for this, yeah. right? And, and by the way, none of these answers are right or wrong universally, right? But we can we can frame the, the the context of a problem and come up with framing that is more effective or more accurate, right? We, we've got to we've got to choose where are we willing to. To, to take a loss, right? Uh, you know, it, it, everything that we do involves a kind of market in, in, in the back of our heads, right? What, 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 are we, what are we buying and what are we selling, right? Are we buying precision at the expense of understanding? Uh, you know, are, are, we, are we being very precise, but being a complete ass about how we're <laughs> specifying it, right? We, I'm sure you've never met anyone like that. No, no, no. But... <laughs> this, this question of, you know, how, how do we establish our models, right? And how do we make them less wrong? And, you know, I, I like to think of the way that we operate in the world as a, as a way of basically uh, choosing our delusions Right. And, you know, if, if I was to, to describe, well, what is science? Right. It, it's the infinite search for better delusions and better in the sense that, you know, they're more predictive, they're 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 more um, calculable. Right. They're 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 um, um, more accurate in terms of. Um, you know, whether you want to do it from a prediction standpoint or whether you want to do it from a measurement standpoint, right? 
um, you, you know, ultimately science needs to construct maps of reality that we can use to navigate reality, right? Because it can't fit in our heads. We, we've, we've got to do the next best thing, which is have a model, which is a simplified version, right? The map is not the territory. We've got to have a model that will allow us to, to, to navigate and hopefully make progress, right? Have some development uh, that, that takes us from the state that we're in to the state that we want to uh, be in, right? And you know that's where, if, if I was to define mathematics, I would define it as the purest human construction of abstract reality that we've that we've ever had right now there's a lot of mathematics that we can't prove but we can't disprove right because they're constructions that are uh useful and that uh that we haven't yet run into um run into the logical uh, uh, conflicts or, or fallacies, right? So is this more like theoretical mathematics? Is that the term you would use? For no, I, I, I would just say all of mathematics. What, what, what we do, because what, what we've done is, is we've, we've, we've taken all of reality and tried to abstract it into something we can symbolically manipulate, right? right. So start with the simplest mathematics, right? Um, you know the the concept of one is is probably the beginning of mathematics i you know I, I i came from a single being and then became separate right and now now there's two but one is the the mathematical identity right and so i can multiply anything by one and get it back again and the additive identity is zero, right? I can add zero to anything and I can get it back again. And, and by starting from those very first principles of, you know, zero means nothing, one means a single instance, right? Then I can start to construct the, the rest of numerics, right? So I've got a symbol for zero, I got a symbol for one, that's enough for binary mathematics, right? And then if I decide to create a new symbol for two, right? So I can either say one, one is, is two and then one, one, one is three and so on. And, and then I'm just, uh, you know, uh, using, you, you can think of, you know, zero is zero and then the number of ones that I have, right? So, so th this, is, th this is what you might call base one mathematics, right? Now, what computers use is base two, right? We're we're using powers of two to and and using the ones and zeros to keep track of those powers of two, right? So uh, if if I say zero and one, then the next one is the first uh, or the sorry the zeroth power of two, which is two. Oh wait, no, zeroth power of two is one. So this is the first power of two is two, right? So it's one zero, right? And then the next logical number without creating a new symbol, right? Is, is that same number plus one, which is three. So it's one, one, 
right? And then you, you construct the whole thing from there. And then if you want to add another number to it, right, you, you can add two, right? And then you can get what's known as a ternary number system. That ternary number system, you, you can look at it two ways, right? You can look at it as zero, one, two, but you can also look at it as negative one, zero, one, and construct your entire system from, from that uh, ternary loop that that's uh, you know it can, it can still be based on powers but there's multiple ways of of, of expressing ternary and what is right? the an obvious example of where that's used um well the, the, actually there are quite a few practical applications for for ternary math but we, i mean we're it's not like we're using them with computers right, right. It, you could right i think there are some places where uh, uh ternary mathematics has some interesting properties uh, and and I like to I've I've built a few. Uh, 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 originally, they were kind of Lego based creations where I was looking at ternary multiplication and the patterns that they made when when you're dealing with three digits. It's it's it's, it's really cool. Um, but as as I got going deeper, I started realizing that you know we have by by choosing the number base that we did, of course, because we've got. 10 digits right that, that that becomes a natural and that's not the only number base that humans have used right um you know ba babylonians use 60 which had some really nice properties lots of divisors right uh, and and we still by the way we still use uh the the babylonian numeric concepts all the time right our, our clocks are still uh done through divisions of 60s right mm -hmm. and, and and so you know you've you've got and and 60s got some really nice properties it's got it, it's got a lot of uh its own prime divisors so not only do you get two and three right and and of course six is a composite uh, of those two and 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 then you get 10 and 12 but you 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 have five because of that and uh, you, you have, um, you know, of course, we, we talked about six already. Uh, it, it's the, 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 um, the fact that we have so many divisors there, right? That, that's, that's why we were able to divide uh, things into 360 degrees, right? And where you see the, the, the term minutes and seconds, you know, that doesn't necessarily even have to refer to time, right? It's, it's divisions uh, so, of, of that. I mean, this, yeah, this has uh, been in our culture for many, many years, you know, hundreds or thousands of years now. But whenever I read a sci-fi book, they always talk in clicks and milliseconds and it goes back to base, is that base 10? It, um, yes, so yeah. any anytime that you're, well, actually it's a combination, right? Because um, seconds, of course, uh, are, are still, it's a, a 60th of a minute, which is a 60th of an hour, right? Which is a 24th of a day. And, you know, roughly a 360th uh, of a year, right? And, and so you realize that we, we, we have these different number systems all mixed up together. And, 
Um, what we don't have is uh, is a kind of fundamental unit of time that that has you know really clean divisors. Uh, um, you know, the closest we come is in, you know, Unix has a, a, a time representation that it's uh, what the number of seconds since 1970. Right. right? And, and so that's I think about as close as we've come in in computing. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So they've. Why did they choose 1970? Was that the year Unix uh, first um, came to being? Or? Yeah. I mean, certainly um, when Unix was developed in Bell Labs, uh, that that was a convenient reference point, right? That that allowed for some some of the formulate conversion to be a little more intuitive. Mm. Of course, now we can see just how arbitrary that was. Mm. And you know, it's you, it still requires translation, right? Because it, it, we haven't gotten away from uh, from seconds, minutes, and hours. And we, we've also got in 1970, we've, we've, we've got a cultural frame, right? That goes back to the, uh, the, the year of Christ's birth, right? Uh, you know, and, and then you dig a little bit deeper and you realize, okay, how, how did they uh, uh, zero in on that date? Well, you go back into the Middle Ages and, and various councils uh, in, in which these things were decided and uh, and, and then you also see where uh, you know Greek and Roman divisions uh, of, of uh, keeping track uh, come into play, right? And you realize all of this stuff is entangled, right? Our cultural frames have that, and uh, if 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 you triangulate from your culture and another culture, you can often find these common points of reference. And it's a matter of, you know, understanding, you know, how, how do those frames uh, affect the way that we self-program, right? And I mean, th this is where the, the gameplay work that, that, that I've been in kind of starts. It starts from this premise of, you know, the machines are really, really poor at, context right we have to teach them context and in general they can't learn context we we have to kind of force uh, the the frame on them and then because we force the frame uh, on them uh, their their ability to self-program is consequently extremely limited so if, if if we took a step back and say okay we don't necessarily know how to make the machines self-program yet, but the reality is we don't even really understand how we manage to self-program. What's what what's made us so different, right? And what I'm going to do here is I'm going to uh, I'm going to sneak into the corner here and uh, you know look at you know I've, I've I've started to come to the conclusion that. You know, color isn't the only thing that appears to us as looped because we, we kind of have this, you can think of it as uh, our firmware tells us, all right, the, the, these are the fundamental loops, right? Color is one loop, right? An, another loop is, is our emotion. And, and if you've ever seen, you know, like Plotkin's 
uh, emotion wheels and, and, and some of the other derivatives, right? You, you can see that there is some kind of a natural loop that emotions form. And in many ways, it's, it's not a question of uh, how do you perfectly characterize the points along that loop? It's a question of how many subdivisions of that loop do you, uh, do you recognize, do you I identify as distinct, right? And so what's an example of separating them? What, what would that Well, be? yeah, so I've, I've got one here. This is, this is from a presentation I did at, at, at MapCamp where, um, you know, Simon Wardley kind of started this and what inspired him was kind of understanding what, what's the basis for a strategy, right? And if, if you study people like Sun Tzu or uh, another one of these things, uh, uh, John Boyd, when he was training uh, American fighter pilots, right? He was trying to figure out what's the fastest way that he can get them to... Um, uh, observe and react and make smart decisions uh, because things happen so much faster when you when, when you have that much power behind you the, the brain uh, barely has a chance to keep up what what Simon noticed is that there, there's a very similar loop right and that you you've got this um, place where you know observe orient decide act right? The, the act part is, is what he likes to label as the game, right? And when you look and, and map that up to what Sun Tzu uh, is, is basically uh, structuring his uh, uh, approach around, which is, you know, un understanding the landscape, the climate, uh, doctrine, and then uh, applying leadership. So and, and just... then just to, to uh, just for people listening, that's the Sun Tzu, Sun Tzu's five factors. Yes, so from the art of war. So that's that's his loop, and then John Boyd, he has um, his loop is called the OODA. OODA. Loop. And what does so that stand observe, for? Orient, decide, act. Okay. Right? Cool. And so, you, you, can, you can think of this as being part of a core loop, and I'll explain that later, but it, you think of our internal loop as thought, emotion, thought, emotion, thought, emotion, right? Uh, I, I have a narrative, and, and that generates a feeling, which generates more narrative, which generates another feeling, right? That's kind of the, the, the motor that drives how we allocate our time and energy, Right. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a continuous feedback loop, right? There, we have this ability of both uh, participating in our own programming and observing the effects of that programming, right? That, that when, so when I say we're self-programming, that's, that's the fundamental nature. That's, that's the essence of consciousness, frankly. And so if, if we take a step back and in, 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 in framing uh, these things, if we say, uh, let's see, if, if we say, okay, let's, let, let's rewind to the point 
where we're you know first forming any kind of awareness of you know, what, what was the first time that we became aware of the present moment and when did you first recognize your place within the present moment, right? How much time did you have to spend on earth engaged in life before you could consciously recognize that you were part of a moment now and you were able to kind of orient and place yourself within that moment in a way that made sense to you? Right. You know, th this is something that you probably aren't able to access because it, it happened so many years ago, but it certainly didn't happen the moment you were born. Or if it did, you had no language to, to get to describe it. Right. I, and I really, I really like this. It, it reminds me of um, this book by uh, Ian M. Banks. Have you read any of his culture series? I, I haven't. There are so many good books out there. Yeah, I know. What it's I recognize huge. is everybody has their own conceptions of these loops. And the key here is to recognize whenever you see a loop, instead of immediately trying to go for the dichotomy, good, bad, uh, alive, dead, right? Try to tease that loop out a little bit more and get at least a third point in, right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, instead yeah. of just saying, you know, uh, uh, academic and business, uh, you know, uh, academic business and uh, government, right? Say, and 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 there's an interesting loop, and and you've got dynamics that move in each direction, and it's really really hard to be perfectly centered uh, among all the different poles uh, in, in in this uh, in, in this loop, right? Yeah, so this in in the culture series, it because everything it's about space and everything's so vast. It was where I first was introduced to the thought that we are, you know, our technology is, you know, probably twelve. Let's say twelve thousand years old. We started out as as farmers around then, and 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 now we're sitting here on computers having a conversation. But in this book, because. Um, the aliens are meeting other alien races whole races have lived their whole technological um life and died out thousands of years before we even got started and it was this kind of idea that you know we we are present at the moment and the technology that we have at our hands is the most up to date but there's this thought that you know there could be other cultures that are so much more advanced and died out or even humans on earth they could have had a lot more tools or abilities than we are actually aware of so it's just it's it's kind even of more interesting is you, you take that and extend it and say all right what traces of these other cultures might exist in our world that that you know we're, we're not looking and uh, uh, we're not looking for properly or we're not asking the right questions right mm. you know we we are talking constantly about the fact that oh you know the, th this thing here is evidence of the big bang right and uh and maybe it is right most most likely right the big bang is is just a slightly better delusion than the last creation myth that we had and and so we're getting closer 
right? But eventually someone, someone will come up with an even better fundamental explanation for the, these phenomena, right? And it, it, here's the thing. The key is not to say, oh, the Big Bang's wrong, right? The key is to say, all right, let's continue on with that thesis and see how far we can get with it before things start to break down. Mm. And, you know, I think the amazing thing is, is how well it's held up uh, under lot, lots of different uh, experimental observations. Now, it's, it's not perfect. There's still things that, that we really don't have a handle on, right? Dark matter, uh, uh, dark energy, right? We, uh, we understand that there's something missing in our calculations. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're trying our damnedest to figure out as, uh, as a human society. I think, uh, I think what you said, yeah, what you said is really beautiful that, you know, we don't immediately dismiss it as wrong, but we use it as uh, a basis for us to, uh, build off of it's better to have something that's wrong and then find reasons of why it's right or to, to make it better than to not have anything at all there's this really good example of this where recently we had this um, object this ufo come from very deep space omoa moa and it created this huge sensation amongst astro astrological scientists because some are saying this is aliens and others were saying this is clearly can't possibly be aliens. But I think the main point was that the probably the loudest person that was saying this could be aliens, by saying this could be aliens, it created this whole um, sort of pattern that would allow us to explore if it was aliens. Uh, that, let's pretend for a moment that it is aliens. What, how are we going to treat this? What should we be doing the next time it comes around? You need to put your mic on. It, it, exactly. The, the whole point uh, behind this is um, why are we, we why were we so immediately unwilling to uh, to consider the possibility? Right. The, the, the fact that, yes, there are a lot of conspiracy theorists out there for whom the, the, their sense making re requires uh, uh, the, the adoption of. Uh, uh, kinds of fiction that that are problematic. Let, let, let's just say problematic, right? That, that's a good word. I, I, personally, I think there are uh, there, there's alien evidence all over the place, right? But we have to define aliens first, right? Th th there are things that everybody agrees. Oh, th this this stuff is alien. It it didn't originate on Earth, right? Uh, and therefore, it's alien, right? So th there's there's a bunch of completely uncontroversial uh, alien material uh, on uh, on this planet right that we know doesn't come from this planet right and you know we'll uh, we'll use different terms like meteors and you know nobody has a problem but uh, as soon as you 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 take and this is the thing every bit of language has so much baggage with it right and so, you know, why were all these people from uh, the uh, scientific institutions reluctant to use the word alien? Well, it's because they they certainly didn't want to give credence to, you know, popular uh, alien contact theories, right? And okay, so that's understandable, 
but it's also then you start to get into the problem of what I'd call scientism, right? Where uh, you know you you've gotten rid of everything that you could uh, consider religion, right? And so the only thing you have left is is to say, okay, we we know it, if not all, we know enough to be able to say we're right, right? And 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 then. Uh, science no longer becomes a search for better delusion, uh, but an insistence that, uh, that, that, that we profess belief in the delusion, the, the current delusions that exist right now, which, which, which is a different thing, right? That's no longer science. Yeah, exactly. Okay, fascinating side tangent. Please continue. So let me let's see, let me move. Oh, not good. I'm, I'm already out of the way. Okay. Uh, so the, the the fundamental question that I had when I started this was, okay, how much of you know what? And, and I use the word gameplay in the sense of, you know, we 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 had some bootstrap programming and some behaviors that that were automatic, right? And in general, right, humans cry when they are first born and they're in need. I, I, I've got to imagine that there are few people for whom uh, the, you know, taking those first few breaths is not a traumatic experience that doesn't have you know, long-term repercussions, right? But you know, a lot of, you know, when, when we did take that first breath, right? How hard was it, right? You got to think that a lot of this was programmed into us and we were still completely reactive. We were still trying to figure out what the hell is going on because we, we didn't yet have context. We didn't yet have framing, right? But, but there are things that are pre-programmed into us, right? We know that we have drives, right? There's no, nobody's going to argue that, that hunger is, is, is not a pre-programmed drive in, in, a, in us. That uh, you know, that sex isn't a pre-programmed drive within us, right? It's uh, anyone that tries to argue otherwise is 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 met with uh, you know a weight of uh, you know real-world experience that, that that makes it really hard to to you know credibly make arguments otherwise. But um, it's only recently that scientists have taken this attitude of. fundamental drive for sense-making. And if you want to understand how does religion arise, right, you, it, it's because we have a fundamental drive for sense-making, right? And if, if, if we don't have a fundamental, you know, oversimplified model that, that we can use to kind of make sense of the world that, that we jump into, then, you know, we'll, we'll invent one or we'll attach to the first one that, uh, that, we, that we perceive. And, and so I, I think this is, this is part of our programming, right? This is part of the loop that we have. And we just gradually get better and better at uh, being creative with the inputs that we have and attaching them to uh, frameworks that, uh, that, that feels satisfying.
and and therefore allows us to, to feel like we you know can make sense and so this this question of how do you make sense of the game along the way or and and really it's you know there is this holistic sense of the game and then there are there are all these mini games that are happening simultaneously within life and we often have the choice right do we do we want to win the games do we want to enjoy the journeys or you know do we want to you know help more people to uh to, to to be winners in the game right and you can pick two at any given point in time and th then if you kind of continue this thought and say all right what was the process that you went through to self-program right what what enabled you to master a new level of gameplay right that the canonical example is, you know, how did you learn to ride a bike, right? And I went through this recently with, um, you know, my, uh, at the time he was six, right? He's eight now. And um, I, I, I tried looking at YouTube first this time and, and, and I bumped into uh, some very effective ways to start. And you have to remove the pedals first if you want to quickly learn how to ride a bike. Now, why is that? Well, it's because you're teaching multiple skills that need to be learned simultaneously for uh, the, and have to be mastered in concert, right? You've got, you've, you've got to orchestrate several things that are going on at once, right? One is being able to uh, keep a bike that's moving forward balanced, right? And the way you do that, you, you've, you've forgotten how you do that, right? When, when you, your body senses that it's falling to the right, you pull your right hand towards you, which pulls the wheel to the right, which creates pressure to put the, the, the bike back into equilibrium, right? As long as you don't, oh, right, if you turn too sharply, uh, then, then things get chaotic, right? But if you just turn slightly, right, then, then you'll be able to continue on at equilibrium. And then if you are starting to fall, if you sense that you're falling to the left, you pull your left hand towards you. I guess and, this is why the, the best software tutorials that I come across, they really let you just try that one tool out. You know, you physically have to give it a go before you move on to the next one. The most complicated interfaces to learn are when they just throw you in and they have a bunch of bubbles all around saying, this tool does this, this tool does this. Yeah, and, it's, it's and you can't master them all at once. You, 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 yeah. You've got to break them down and get, uh, you, you think of this as you, you, you've got to get one by one, some automatic behavior loops programmed into you, right? So the, the first one that needs to be programmed is not pedaling the pedals round and round. The first one that needs to be programmed into you is not falling over. <laughs> and, and so you don't want the pedals there. They're a distraction, right? You take the pedals off, they, they just get in the fucking way, right? <laughs> and so what you do is you take the pedals off, you set down on the bike and you, uh, you, you have someone give you a push and then you practice not falling over, right? <laughs> 
Now, you, you also need to learn something. If you're doing this on, on level ground, it's fine, right? You, uh, you, you can just stand up straight when, uh, when, when you're, you know, feel comfortable or when you feel uncomfortable, right? Either way. Uh, without the pedals, you're, you're, you're going to have a hard time, but uh, the best way is to get a bike that, that has both the coaster brake and the, uh, the, the, the hand uh, uh, brake. And so the, it becomes relatively easy to learn, okay, I squeeze my hands when I want to go slower. That, that's a really, really intuitive action. And so now you know how to keep from falling over in terms of forward motion, and you, you know how to uh, keep from crashing into something in front of you by, by stopping, and, and you, can, uh, you can get back to uh, a full equilibrium just by standing up, right? Once those three are mastered and automated, then you put on the pedals. And the, the hardest thing, this is, this is a bootstrapping thing. It, the, the, it's the hardest thing for a while because it's really easy if somebody gives you a push to then figure out, okay, now I can start pedaling, right? And going, going in the motion. It's, it's hard to take that leap of faith where you're pushing off and then putting your feet up, finding the pedals and then beginning the pedal before you've lost the momentum needed to proceed forward. Right. And now we've just described the, you know, th th there's about five or six behaviors in there. And th those five or six behaviors, once they're automated, you can pretty much be on autopilot. And all you have to do is periodically pay attention to uh, the, the environment around you to figure out if there's anything you need to do to respond. Uh, if if you start to fall over, right, your your automatic behavior is going to kick in even before you become conscious of that, right? And and after a while, you can be holding a conversation on a cell phone in the middle of central London craft traffic, and you know not be fundamentally exposing yourself to undue risk, right? As long as you understand the rules of traffic, as long as you understand the uh, right there, there's there's a lot of caveats to that right but th this is how you know we program that artificial behavior th that automatic behavior right now that automatic behavior then be allows us to uh, add more and more layers of creative pattern until it's something that you know as, as we say we could do in our sleep right which and, is interesting in itself because I think you do learn a lot through your dreams, probably a, a lot how to handle emotions. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that it's learning. I would say it's the integration of the learning that we've done in the form of right, we're we're creating the actual neural networks as we sleep, right? That that is taking the programming out of our short-term memory and turning it because the learning we had to do consciously, right? But the integration is what we're doing when we're sleeping, right? Mm -hmm. So 
we got an insight, we learned something, right? But it's not going to stick unless we have a chance to, to uh, integrate it with the rest of our uh, supercomputers neural network. So something that, that I found is when I started uh, meditating after about uh, a year, I found that if I practice very consciously day to day, if there was some kind of emotion where it needed something uh, for me to immediately react to, maybe someone says something that makes me angry or makes me sad, instead of reacting to that situation, I would stop and go into this sort of meditative um, pose and really feel that, that sadness or that anger and just let it pass away. And what I found after a while is I became very conscious in my dreams where the, I'd be experiencing these very strong emotions, maybe something that happened recently had triggered it. But by um, going into that automatic meditative pose again in my sleep, I would actually, um, the dream would kind of, would in a way, it's hard to describe it, but the emotions would kind of fade away. And I'd get this similar feeling I have when I have a creative thought where I get this kind of tingle over my body as if something really nice has just connected up. Um, and then I, I kind of felt like that dream would no longer come back to me again because I'd, I'd learned the lesson. I'd learned how to deal with that emotion. Um, You'd finished building the 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 the. the uh, fractal generator that allows you to bring that to to uh, in, into your conscious um, decision making uh, w w without difficulty, right? Uh, yeah. you, you can think of our memories as you know it's they're they're not stored in bits and bytes, right? They're stored as the fractal patterns in our neural networks, and they're constantly being updated and reintegrated and the only way that we're able to make sense of the world is is by having a completeness of integration and over time right life becomes simpler because we need fewer and fewer patterns because our uh the the, the holistic view uh that that, that we maintain that, that we're putting together as as we sleep right be becomes uh, more and more uh, coherent and resonant, right? The the thing about it is, if you think about how much more we have to keep in our heads compared to our ancestors of even several generations ago, right? But we we only have the same physical size of brain. So what do you mean by we have to keep a lot more in our minds? What? How can you? Well, in, that? in order to survive in the modern world, right? There there are threats that that happen at so many different layers of creative sophistication right that i i need to be able to know uh if, if i get a particular email right what's the right behavior for that email uh do i click on everything that comes in no of course i don't i i, I need to send things through uh a, a mental filter right now did our ancestors have things like this well kind of but you know, they, they were they were not happening nearly so fast. Uh, there was a limited proximity from which a threat could be directed at them. Right now, we can we can be threatened uh, from anyone on any point of surface uh, of the earth as long as they can find a connection to the internet. Right. Uh, th this is a very very different threat environment 
than the one that uh, you know even we lived in when when we were young. And in fact, you can have a threat or something bad happen to you, and you'll never even know it happened. You know, maybe a few digits on your bank account go missing, and you know that's something that uh, previously wouldn't have been possible. Like a threat would have been a threat to your life or your way of existence or to a family member. But now there's it seems to have got so multi-layered. Well, and and the, uh, the 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 most insidious threats are are the threats that alter. Uh, our perceptions in such subtle ways that that we're not even aware of uh, uh, of, of how we've been exploited. Acker, Facebook, and uh, Cambridge Analytica. Well, yes. Although I think it's it, it, we're in this really weird state where you know we 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 are uh, putting you know it's, it's just like Americans have given Putin mythical powers, right? Mm -hmm. That go far beyond what any Russian would ascribe to him, right? Uh, and it, it's the same thing. We have this we have this thing about big tech, right? And the reality is they didn't know what they were building when they were building it, right? I mean, they 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 knew what they what their intentions were, right? But they had no idea that they were building machines to harvest human attention and engagement and directly monetize that human attention and, and, and engagement. In, in ways that would later prove problematic, right? Th this, this whole thing has caused us to question the nature of our reality. And of course, you know, you, you, what you see is that Zuckerberg has, has, has decided that, well, rather than getting pummeled uh, on this stuff, he'd rather kind of run with it and embrace the metaverse and try to make that his thing, right? Uh, e even though, uh, you know, I don't think any of us really want to live in Zuckerberg's metaverse. We've seen how he treats our private data, and we're not necessarily fans of his uh, approach, right? That being said, I do think it's a little bit unfair for us to expect that uh, Facebook is going to somehow automatically know uh, exactly what moral standards should be uh, applied and what standards of truth should be applied in every cultural frame at any time, right? The, the fact is the, the, the cultures themselves are the weapons here, right? Uh, and, and Facebook is, is a vehicle for, you know, turning cultures and, and, and cultural, uh, cultural framing into weapons of mass destruction, right? And, this sort of thing, it's it's so new to us that, you know, we, we have a hard time even getting our heads around it. We, we, we have a sense that there's something really wrong here, but we're often, and this is the thing, if you look historically at the people that have done the biggest damage in the world, right, uh, the, the, the biggest villains that we like to frame out, Right. They, they were all, you know, deeply convinced of some kind of moral purity. Right. And so it, it's not only the Zuckerbergs in the world that, that you have to be careful of, but it's those who would then take and impose some kind of um, uh, kind of, you know, whether you want to talk about this in terms of uh, policing language, 
or uh, uh, you know, uh, I, I suppose uh, a lot of people would call it thought police even, right? There is just as much danger coming from that side of the framing as there is from those that are pursuing kind of commercial uh, purposes for uh, dubious uh, reasons, right? And the thing is, the point is not to turn this into a, a, a descent into moral relativity. The point is to say, uh, all right, what framing here is actually helping us as a society improve our institutions, our sense of fairness, of governance, of inclusion, right? How do we get more people playing these online games, right? And when I say playing these online games, I don't necessarily literally mean gaming. I mean, we're, we're creating, you know, I. I don't like the word metaverse just because it's been co-opted by so many people whose ideas I don't agree with, but I don't think it's wrong either. I think there is a aspect of human society that is now um, tangibly in existence and accessed through our electronic devices. And to pretend that that is not true is to kind of ignore all around us the evidence that you know that, that we've we've made these electronic devices an extension of ourselves right the the cloud mobile compute revolution of, of the last uh two decades has caused us to create an, an extension of this supercomputer here into and and, and an embodiment of of that in, in, into, you know, we, we would have said in the 90s, a cyber world, right? That, that sounds so archaic to say it like this today. Uh, and, and then we've also, with things like uh, AR, right, we've, we, we've got this ability of projecting things that aren't there physically onto our, our visual field and you know to maintain an illusion that, that we're perfectly happy to participate in. It feels no worse than, than watching a Hollywood movie and quite a bit more uh, believable, right? The suspension of disbelief is not difficult. And, you know, that, that is the new nature of our reality. It's, it's part of our reality. We can't imagine a world where we've rolled this back and it, it's no longer uh, a thing. I mean, something that seems relevant at this point of the conversation is Pokemon Go. You know that stormed, exactly that stormed the world a couple of years ago i remember i was in france at the time and i went to a local park and kids on rollerblades adults running around everyone was meeting up at these uh gym spots to have a big battle and it just wasn't clear like you know you had to work out whose team are you red blue and there was all this interplay between the virtual and the real but it was, yeah, it was super interesting, and I'm sure you would have a lot to say on the dynamics of how that worked and why and how it became such a, a sensation of a very. And, and I was at time. Google at the time, and it very yeah. nearly took down Google Cloud. Right, Google Cloud was uh, not prepared for the scale. Right, it was 
it was what you would call a catastrophic success case, right? Very nearly took the rest of Google Cloud offline, uh, but they, they managed to stay just far ahead of it, right? And of course, Niantic was spun out of Google, but they had no idea that this was the thing that was going to catch fire, right? And, you know, this is the world that we live in. You, you can, you can make a prediction about what the world will find resonant, but you, you won't know until you've run the experiment and you've got to be prepared for not just an order of magnitude difference in your prediction versus the, the, the reality, but several orders of magnitude. I'm going to see what's happening around me in this particular model, and I'm going to um, choose this particular word in my narrative loop, and I'm going to look at that thing and not that other thing. And I'm going to focus my uh, uh, emotional uh, search in, in this particular area and not that one. I'm, I'm going to choose to focus here and not there. Right. This is where we're talking about the tools that we use to make sense of the gameplay. What, what, are, what are we doing to kind of map out all the possibilities and make sense of the ones that for us, feel the most executable. And the deeper you go down this path, the, you know, the more perplexing the methods that, that we use to make sense of things. We, we take these frames that we're given, these cultural frames from when we're very young, and we don't really get to examine those frames until we're really old. And in between, there's a lot of automatic thinking and uh, a lot of assumptions and a, a lot of uh, delusions, right? Yeah, we were kind of required to have lots and lots of delusions from simple things like the value of money, right? That's a very useful shared delusion to many more complex things like our, uh, our moral frameworks, our, our ethical constructs, right? Th these are typically very sophisticated in certainly Western society, right? And so if you ask that question of, oh, okay, let's suppose you had a robot, right? And how are you going to be able to help that robot to understand the context of your narrative, who you are, what you've learned? You know, when we're dealing person to person, right, we, we form these narrative loops. Right. A lot of times we'll, we'll, when we're dealing with people that we don't know very well, you know, we'll, we'll think in terms of either stereotypes. If, if we only know something about their 
uh, nationality or ethnicity or stereotypes in terms of, oh, he's an accountant. You know, he must be fun at parties. I think this is, this is quite an interesting subject. When I go to a party or in a, in a group meeting people for the first time, unless obviously it's a networking event, I try and see how long I can hold off asking, what, what's your job? What do you do? And yeah. try and get all the other questions. And it's very difficult because you go to impulses. You want to put people into You a want nice a label. Frame. Exactly. Give me a label. Exactly. And help, the longer you can help, hold help off. Help me label yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and if and if you can go beyond that and get to the deeper part, it's almost like maybe you maybe you have a really bad association with lawyers. So the person you're talking to, if they told you a lawyer, you're immediately going to shut them down and ignore what they say. But if you can dig deeper first and get to know them, maybe when they tell you a lawyer, you're creating a new association with that. So it would be kind of more better and you're going to have a nicer friendships as well. So that's, well, it's, that's it's also trick. interesting when you think about how does the frame of the context of the social situation change the way you view the individuals that you're meeting. Mm. Right. If, if, if you're meeting at a sports venue, right, you're, you're going to have a, a, a different approach to say talking with a doctor or a lawyer than if you're meeting them uh, w within the professional context in, in which they are either advising you or uh, treating you, right? Uh, this just makes me think, you know, meeting someone at Burning Man, like <laughs> a CEO of Facebook or something in at Burning Man, like all references are blurred and broken there. Great. We need these spaces. Well, this is also something that I've thought about a lot from a context, or sorry, from a, from in the context of a clubhouse, right? Mm. So I've met, uh, quite a few, uh, the startup founders and, and leaders and consultants and as, as well as just, uh, it, it, you know, I was going to say every day, but, uh, uh, that's not really what I want to go for here. Just people that are in uh, various places in uh, professional hierarchies, right? As as well as social hierarchies, right? People that are uh, well known. Uh, for for instance, uh, in a number of the rooms, uh, there were some really really excellent rooms that were going on for a while. Um, it, that a, a group called ism.earth was, was putting on. And, you know, we, we had such a variety of participants that were showing up in that room. And one, one of the other regulars uh, was MC Hammer. <laughs> and we had a lot of really, really great conversations about artificial intelligence. And you wouldn't have expected and you know interestingly uh, if you if you look at my twitter now you'll uh, obviously i i tweet far too much but you'll find that mc hammer has retweeted me in a few places and i've retweeted him in a few places and uh, it, it's uh, you, you know how would you have known the context of how that happened unless someone explained to you oh well there was there were these rooms on clubhouse 
And we were participating in a particular room that was very successful uh, for a, a bunch of weeks. You know, it was I almost felt like it was my church for a while because it was like my regular Sunday uh, afternoon thing. Uh, and and then it it kind of uh, dissipated. Right. There's so many things that come into our lives and become a part of our lives and then they disappear and they're unstructured right and it it's serendipity in many cases that that we cross paths with the people that that we cross paths with and so you can you can start talking in terms of uh spirituality and kind of frame those sorts of things as the spiritual, or you can talk about them in terms of entropy and kind of random, right? There's so many people in the world. And if, if you create enough, uh, random opportunities for crossing paths with other people, you'll, you'll cross paths with a, uh, surprisingly wide range of uh, people and backgrounds, and some of those people will be uh, well known. Uh, some of those people will be unknown uh, from a uh, celebrity or from a social hierarchy point of view. Mm. But the the fact remains that you have to kind of deliberately create opportunities. I call it planned serendipity for these things to happen and be open to the possibilities or you'll you'll be so good at you know framing out you know here's what i'm doing here's what i'm doing next right that that you'll leave no room for serendipity right and whether you want to kind of look at it in the spiritual uh, or religious right there's so many different ways to frame this out. Doesn't really matter which way you choose, so much as you understand this is a strategy, right? That you can use to be able to create new frames and get perspective on existing frames. So, if you look at how humans organize, right, we, we've been creating these artificial life forms for thousands of years. You know, the, the oldest institutions that we have are souls that, while we can uh, date many of them, right, there are quite a few that, you know, whose origins are shrouded in obscurity because they've crossed so many generations, right? And these these are artificial life forms because they they have their own culture around them. They have their own, you know, there's you can take out an arbitrary number of humans and, you know, they will still continue and uh, the cultural framing and the cultural changes around that framing take time to be able to change right you can you you can change the cultural dna if you will of of any of these artificial life forms 
but it, it takes a lot of time. And what we see is, well, I mean, there, there's a lot of sayings that we have, like, you know, none of us is as dumb as all of us, right? Uh, we see that within our institutions, you know, we don't have as much creativity inside the institution as we have as individuals within uh, that institution, right? It, it's it's not uh, it's it's not strictly additive. Right? I guess this yeah. is this is why you get quite big incumbents that have really struggled to create this creativity, this new products within their company. And that's why you have this vibrant startup scene because it's new culture, it's small ideas, risky ideas that can take place and flourish. And I think now, or over the last few years anyway, bigger companies are trying to work out how can they create this smaller culture within the big culture so that it can feed out and create more business avenues and business streams. Well, we, we don't fundamentally understand the nature of creativity is the, is the problem, right? We, we don't understand where does it come from? How does it propagate, right? It's, I, I like to think of it as kind of we're in the Ben Franklin era of creativity and critical thinking, right? We know there is a thing called creativity and, you know, we, we can do experiments that aren't aren't very you no know, aren't aren't very coherent all the time right uh, but are we we recognize there there is something that uh, is creativity and i i i would describe it as kind of the the voltage you know if you think of creativity as as the voltage of pattern assembly right and you 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 take all these different potential patterns and creativity is the potential that you have for uh, assembling those patterns into something uh, new and novel that that's creativity right and you can think of critical thinking as the amperage right it's the um the flip side of that pattern matching how many patterns can an individual or an organization um compare against what, what they're seeing right, in uh, a unit of time. So someone that's got really good critical thinking skills, right? It's, they've, they've got the ability of matching many, many, many patterns per unit of time compared to others, right? Somebody who's creative has many, many uh, patterns available for uh, construction at at any given point in time, right? And and they have the ability of bringing uh, uh, any arbitrary set of of those patterns together uh, for assembly. And so the, the being able to be productive involves making use of those patterns and and comparing uh, what's produced with those patterns right so you're going back and forth right Th this combination allows uh, production uh, to happen right? 
production of, of new and novel things. But we don't really have formal definitions that we can then put into our machines, right? The, the kinds of things that we do that we call artificial intelligence are, are very, very primitive. We, we can't specify these patterns in the kind of abstract way that we're able to manipulate within our own biomachine. Right? We, we, we do a lot of, I mean, it's amazing what we're able to do with machines right now, but we have yet to produce a machine that even a five-year-old would accept as producing something that's fundamentally created. Right? Um, and corporations have more creativity than, than the machines that, that we're producing, right? Albeit we recognize that, that, that they have less creativity than we have as, as individuals. So, if if we look at this question of how do we as individuals and how do we collectively as institutions, organizations, or how would a robot or a machine be able to interact with humans, right? It's it's all the same basic problem here. How do we enable something that's not human to understand human gameplay? And how do we understand our own gameplay? What are the fundamental game loops that we play? How do we guide a machine to be more human? And you might also say humane, right? How do you, how do you make your robots more humane? We're really good at building robots and systems that turn humans into robots, but we're not really particularly capable yet of enabling our robots and our automated systems and you know our institutions, right? We're not really good at making them interact smoothly with with the way that humans think and act and you know, when I talk about human gameplay, right, you would want anything that is intended to scale to be able to understand humans, but we don't understand ourselves, right? We, uh, we don't understand the nature of the machine beyond a few, you know, very simple things. We've, we've got this word consciousness that uh, we debate constantly, right? And if we try to divide up the kind of the different things that humans do, right? These often turn into loops, right? We, we have a tendency to, to kind of slice it down the middle and say, well, it's alive or it's dead. It's, it's black or it's white. And, and of course, that's that's very unhelpful because most of the things that we experience, we experience in more like a loop, like color we experience as a loop. Uh, red and blue is not 
electromagnetically anywhere near each other, but we have this sense of when when we have both going on, uh, we see the color purple, right? How is that? Well, it's because of the way our bio machine is wired. If if you look at the uh, Plotkin's uh, emotion wheel, right? You, you you see that that our emotions tend to be in a loop, and if you look at uh, strategy, right? You you'll see whether you go to something ancient like uh, Sun Tzu's Art of War, or uh, th- this is something that Simon Wardley put together, uh, where he's layering the Art of War and John Boyd's. Uh, uh, OODA loop that he used when he's teaching fighter pilots to observe, orient, decide, and act is is the kind of fastest uh, decision loop that that he could teach fighter pilots to uh, sense and respond with. Right, and if we if we look at these things in geometric terms. Right, the the entire loop. You you can think of reality as as being a kind of uh, 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 Mobius strip, right? And there there's an inside and an outside, but it's uh, there's a twist in, in in the middle, and and you're inside and outside, and uh, and and if if you kind of slice it up into things that make sense to you, right, then uh, th- then you can look at it and it's it's no longer um, infinite, uh, but you, you get these kind of finite spaces where you, you, you really can't say where one begins and the next one ends, but you can you can say, all right, this is more like alive than dead. This is more like politics than academics, right? And you'll find that other people uh, have have a tendency to um, converge with you on uh, on words and their definition when when you look at them in the context of of a loop. So this particular uh, version is kind of an a, a, an exploded version of the gameplay in Simon Wardley's um, mapping uh, process. And I put this together for for Map Camp originally. But the thing that I want to show here is uh, that when we're sense making, very often. We're doing it, whether we're conscious or not, we're doing it in loops. And then the number of distinct points around that loop that we can distinguish, just like colors, right? If, if you look at societies, uh, they, they almost always start with black and white. The very first color that gets named after that is almost universally red, right? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let you draw your own conclusions as to why that is. But then, so now when, once you're at at least three, the, then it becomes easier and easier to add additional distinguishing uh, uh, points around that loop. 
right? And and so this is what I'm doing in trying to create uh, an understanding of self-programming gameplay, right? An understanding of what are the nature of the patterns, the gameplay patterns that we have within ourselves. What are the kind of automatic things that that just emerge from our programming? And, you know, what's what's different about each dimension of gameplay? You can think of these as uh, pointing in uh, different directions, but um, being simultaneously part of this loop. So the way I've chosen to break this out is I, I've said, okay, I think I can cut this in cut this loop in five different ways and the zero where we start the which is internal and the five which is where we end up is essentially the same basic pattern but looking outwards from the individual and then uh in inwards from the group should we just say what each one of those steps are so you've got so I'm going to go through each of these. Oh, cool. Okay. And so I've got a slide on each one, but this is this is the whole loop, right? Going from internal gameplay to social gameplay to moral gameplay, structural gameplay, functional gameplay, and then something I call fractal gameplay because none of the other words that that I've used um, or tried to use really work. For that one and oops, I keep adding new slides when I want to just switch over and then each of these levels has an emergent characteristic so consciousness is what comes out of our internal gameplay and I'll explain how and why that is and so the, you know the word that I'm choosing here it's in some ways it's kind of arbitrary right I'm trying to find the least worst word to explain the emergence and we'll we'll get into the details here but before you can have community or what we call uh, you know moral gameplay you you've got to have basic communication you've got to have cohesion right and I think that's the first emergence and then you can get to a community. And we're very conscious of our place in the social hierarchy, but we we don't often consider, you know, where does that emerge? Does the hierarchy emerge before uh, sociality? Does it emerge after, right? And Just... we're in a world that is heavily networked, but we don't necessarily understand, you know, how does a network differ from a hierarchy? I mean, this this totally works in contexts where you're starting, let's say, a game studio or any kind of content online. You kind of have to start by getting noticed, building up your social. But how do you do that? I guess what you've just said is exactly the same gameplay. It is, and it's systematic, right? You you've got to be conscious before you can be coherent. You 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 have to have uh, cohesion before you can build a community, 
you, you have to have a community before you can build a social hierarchy, right? You, you have to have some kind of uh, structure, and, and you typically would start with hierarchies, in order to build up uh, a network. And you can't have an ecosystem without networks of uh, ecosystem participants, right? And so you can think of this as going from the smallest scale emergences up to the largest scale emergences, right? And then when, when we talk about concepts like leadership, right, you, what you do with leadership is you are looking downwards from the highest order uh, uh, functions and uh, trying to connect those at the lowest possible levels, right? Uh, and you can think of kind of a, a, a community organizing dynamic as, as going from the low levels and as assembling uh, upwards, right? And it, it's, it's possible to operate in any of these levels independently and to go from one uh, towards another. But we typically, at least my experience is, we're typically able to be in about one and a half of these uh, in, in for any given frame, right? I can be operating in a community and talking about hierarchy within that community, for example, or I'm, I'm building a network and I want that network to bring together other networks and form an ecosystem, right? There's so many different ways to do this. And what I'm going to do is just kind of break down each of these, there, each of these has loops, gameplay loops within them, and they together form a loop. Uh, if, if you want a geometric intuition, think of a uh, torus that instead of having a hole in the middle like a donut, uh, just comes down to a single point. You can, you can think of that one point as the, the zero point, the infinite point, and so you've, you've got these loops that are all looped together. They're bound around this single point. And you've got so many different ways that those loops can be expressed, right? And that, that's the geometric intuition for all of this. It's, it's only useful if you're a visual thinker. If you're not a visual thinker, that's probably not going to do anything for you. But uh, th that's the way that I picture all these loops uh, uh, interacting with each other, even though they're, they're, they're heading in different dimensions simultaneously. Now, each of these loops, I'm, I'm going to use this pattern to break down the loop, right? There's a, there's a label and that label is the thing that I've attached, you know, one through five, right? I picked a word, right? And, there's an emergence that happens out of this primary loop. And one of them I've called the programming spot, so uh, side. And, and it, it's a little bit arbitrary, right? So I tend to think of thoughts as being more like programming than emotions. But honestly, you 
probably make more of your actions. Uh, you probably program more of your behavior with your emotions than you realize. So when I when I say one is the 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 programming and the other is is the currency, the viral currency. I just mean that the one that's the viral currency tends to to be a little bit more uh, viral and and infectious, right? Emotions tend to be a little more infectious than thoughts, right? Although a very very powerful thought is extremely infectious, right? And if, if you think about a virus itself, it's it's nothing but programming code. So th there there's a there's a loop here. This this primary loop is a little bit more sophisticated than just the two words I'm giving it. But if if you look at them as interacting, right? In the in the case of our internal gameplay, you you have this thought, emotion, thought, emotion, thought, emotion, thought, emotion. That's the engine that drives us. Right. And what what are what is that primary loop doing? Well, they're they're distributing some critical resource that is part of this pattern, right? And one is is uh, is is bound, right? And and I'll explain a little bit more uh, as as we get into each loop. Whereas the uh, another is is effectively limitless, right? There's some practical limits on it. But uh, if if we look at internal gameplay, you know the one that's bound is time, and the one that's limitless is is energy. Now, there isn't an infinite amount of energy in the universe, but our ability to extract and use energy um, is does not have as obvious a bound as our um, the the limits that we have on time, right? Uh, time passes and we don't get a whole lot of control over uh, anything except how do we spend the time that we've got. Now, as we as we play this primary loop out over time, um, what ends up happening is these I, I call I like to call them integrals and derivatives. The derivative is pretty obvious because you know what happens as you play this loop out over time. Well, you derive something from that loop, and the reason why I call these integrals is it's it's the opposite of a derivative, right, in a mathematical sense. But let's take a step back and say, okay, for that viral currency. What's the what's the smallest possible? Think of it as kind of the atomic unit of that currency. And for that viral programming, what's the smallest possible unit of that programming? And so I'm going to call that an operand for the currency and an operator for the uh, for the programming. And there's there's an emergent coherence that comes out of that, right? Now, if you play those out, then you end up with what I call a perception uh, on the one hand and an application on the other, but it's it's an it's an external coherence that that we all recognize exists. It's 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 another emergence that is kind of part of our experience. But one is you can think of it as kind of the simplest possible uh, version of it, and the other is the character that uh, that that we experience the qualitative 
uh, things that we experience over time, right? Now, as we're framing out this gameplay, there's a few questions that we can ask ourselves that are really universal to each of these gameplay loops, right? Uh, you can really only pick one or two priorities among th this set of, you know, win the game, enjoy the gameplay, follow the rules, right? Pick two. And what's interesting is that if, if you look at how many people can be playing games in this gameplay simultaneously, right? There's tremendous diversity possible, but socially and culturally, how many diverse games do we accept? Do we allow to be played, right? And socially, how many winners do we allow for, right? Do, do we try to force everybody into the same gameplay and say, you know, the, these are the only games that matter. And so you're either a winner or a loser. And, uh, th therefore, you know, how inclusive are we in, in a given, um, culture, right? Microculture or uh, macroculture in society overall, right? The these are questions that we can ask ourselves uh, with, with, with each of these. And so with that, let's, let's start with the most basic gameplay, the thing that we are most familiar with because it's, what we experience in our head all the time, right? We have thoughts that are programming our emotions that are programming more thoughts and, and that's how we distribute time and energy, right? And we only have so much time, but we have this ability of generating uh, and, you know, creating more energy that is you know this is the most remarkable thing about life is that the ability for uh, life to gather and produce more and more energy right and what we're doing is, is we're taking all these closed loops and and we're making them we're opening them right we, when we first started we were part of another thing right and whether that was our parent, our family, or whether that was something that produced us uh, in terms of the physical forms that we took, right? We're going from something that's not us to become separate, something that is us. And so that, as we see that loop play out, you know, what, what's the smallest emotion? Well, let's call it a feeling. What's the smallest thought? Well, let's call it an idea. And let's look at the interplay between those ideas and those feelings. Let's call that my identity, right? And in a mathematical sense, this is where we get, you know, the the number one is the multiplicative identity. The number zero is the additive identity, right? It doesn't matter 
what you add to zero, you're still going to get that thing. It doesn't matter what you multiply with one, you're still going to get that thing, right? As, as you start to get this interplay between feelings and ideas, you know, this is how you developed your identity loop. This is how you went from being thrust into a world that made no sense until you imposed and constructed meaning out of it, right? And so if you take these integrals and you, you play this identity out over time, these feelings and ideas, you know, what, what, what do you get? You know, all that emotion leads to temperament as it's played out over time. Uh, all those thoughts lead to your, your narrative loop uh, over time, right? And as that emotional temperament and your narrative loop continue to interact over time, you know, we, what we might say is that, that, you know, this is how you develop your character, right? And this is where identity and character, they're, they're emergent characteristics, right? They happen because of the continual execution of this core loop, right? And this is all happening in your head, right? And this is, you know, I'd, I'd like to think that this is the nature of consciousness, right? Now, we have so many different ways of framing consciousness. I don't think this is the only way to frame consciousness. But for me, this is a helpful way of being able to separate what's consciousness as a thing from other things that have um, consciousness as a prerequisite, but that aren't themselves consciousness, right? And, and so there's some key questions that are getting framed in this internal gameplay loop. You know, who am I? You know, what what am I feeling right now? What am I sensing? What what, what do I think? What do we think? Right? Uh, as as we're creating identity for uh, groups that we participate in uh, for these artificial life forms, who are we? Right? Or what what do we think? Right? That naturally leads to social cohesion. Right? That's that's the beginning of social gameplay. And what, what's the nature of that loop? Well, I'd suggest that the fundamental unit of programming here is journeys, right? So if, if you're in tech or you're in gaming, you think of this as a user journey. And then what is it that's most viral ab about this loop, right? It's the actions that we take. Well, what, what's happening socially is we're distributing, now I'm, I'm choosing to call it security uh, because you're either secure or you're insecure and sustenance uh, of which, you know, there's a, you you might have very little or you might have a lot, right? That That's the part that's uh, the equivalent to energy in, in our internal gameplay, right? But this, this is how we start closing those open loops that we created for ourselves internally. 
and start closing them socially. And then if I say, okay, well, what's the smallest possible step or smallest possible action? Well, let's call that a step. What's the smallest possible journey? Well, let's just call that a state. And as those are playing out in a loop, we can call that development. That's that's how we go from nothing to something. Is we we take steps and we pass through states and development happens. Right. And as you play this out over time, you get movement. And you you can have political movement as well as uh physical movement, right? The the this word is uh quite useful in, in both of these ways. And and as you as you take these uh journeys and you're going from state to state, right, you're you're having this progression. Uh and as you progress and move and progress and move, the interplay there, what emerges is something that we call evolution. And as you complete that process over and over and over again, right, then you, you start to create uh, cohesion, social cohesion, meaning, you know, what, what am I doing? Uh, what are you doing? Where, where are we going? How are we doing it? What, uh, what are the actions that we're going to take? Uh, what are the journeys that, that we're going to choose? Who's with us? Who's against us? Right. And naturally, as, as we start to take more and more journeys and, and we have uh, social coherence, right, there, it, it becomes only natural that we create something a little bit more structured that, that's known as a community. So you, you can think of the, the social cohesion as, as creating uh, kind of tribes. But a community isn't formed until you've, you've got multiple tribes that are looped together to form a community where the, those, those loops become additive and we have more than just simple journeys and actions. You know, we have principles that begin to organize what are we doing and why are we doing it? And, and, and the values, the, this is the viral uh, bit, because what we need is uh, uh, some sense of authority. And, you know, you, you either have authority or you don't, right? If you don't have a community, you don't have any authority. If you've, if you've got something with authority, well, there's a community that, that's enabling that. Right. And you either have it or you don't. And an influence. Right. Everybody has different levels of influence and different communities distribute their influence in different ways. But it's just like energy and sustenance. Right. There, the amount of influence that, that exists is uh, completely uh, open for uh in, in interpretation and, and generation right and when you break down what's the smallest possible value well let's call that a belief what's the smallest possible principle 
Let's let's call that a reason. And as these beliefs and reasons play out, you're you're developing ideology. Now, you play ideology out over time, and those beliefs become more and more systematic. They 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 get organized into something we might call doctrine. And I'm I'm using the the religious uh, aspect here absolutely deliberately because this is something that we will develop we, we we will always develop religions whether we intend to or not you know it's it's very popular these days to believe in the re religion of scientism which is not science uh but it's it's a religion that's that's developed around science where uh there, there there's an entire doctrine that that becomes uh, formed uh, out of the, this belief system, right? And as you take these reasons and you play them out over time, you, what you're doing is you're developing theory. And as that doctrine and theory continue to interact, what, what you're doing is uh, uh, propagating uh, and uh, driving systems, right? And uh, humans love to hate uh systems but we we can't help ourselves we 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 have our internal systems and and we uh, we create systems within our communities and and, and uh, it reminds me i i saw like we i saw some graffiti the other day that said fuck the system and then someone else come along with a different color and sprayed out and said fix the system <laughs> so, yeah, I like that. Goes very we, well with we, what you're we saying. We love yeah. to rebel against the system, um, but every every time that we look more deeply, we we realize that we can't help ourselves. We're creating systems, and even if we hate. The systems we create, we're still creating them, right? It's still going to happen. Uh, and the, the only decision that we have is what are the values and the principles that we're going to embrace to distribute the authority and influence that is always going to be there in our communities. Even if we ourselves don't want to pick them up, even if we like to tell ourselves we don't have influence, we do, uh, and it's it's uh, it's a delusion to think that you, we we have neither authority nor uh, nor influence. It's just we have to understand where 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 are we placing them, and uh, if if we're not right who, by default, who gets them if we don't uh, engage with them? Right? And and so the, these questions of who do I value, what do I value, uh, what what and who do I do I trust, what's what's good, what's bad, right? Th these are the things that are getting um, framed out at at this level of moral gameplay, right? As we work through, you know, you can't you can't have any kind of morals or ethics without a community. That, uh, that, that frames and makes sense of those things. Right. Now, eventually you get to the point where 
the 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 structure of that authority and influence needs to be made more systematic right there there there's this need to to be able to work through all the tremendous complexity that that's coming out of that moral gameplay these moral questions get more and more uh, sophisticated and and then you know how is it that that we manage that well we, we create these forms and conventions they're very viral right and we program them with with laws and regulations and and what we're distributing here uh the best words that i have for this is is capital in in terms of you know whether you want to think of it as social capital or uh, or uh, money itself right uh, there's uh, th there's a finite amount of that capital for distribution i guess a good and, example for this would be thinking about the military yes because and, and rank yeah. right so there there's there's only one when you're ranking there's 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 only one that can be on top but there are a lot of different things that can be ranked now this is one where um you know maybe i've got it backwards maybe the rank is the one that, that that that's kind of fixed and the capital is the one that you know we can produce as as much as we need um i i could buy that argument and and deliberately here this is where i i start talking about the fact that you know these these loops uh are are tricky because it, it's it's hard to put one side ahead of the other but you can definitely see this loop playing out now if if I look at how does this play out in day-to-day -day life, right? The the smallest possible form in conventions is just a practice, right? You, you create an expectation. There's this practice, uh, and you know the formal thing is there's a rule or a policy you could call it, right? But the the integral here is order, right? This is how we order uh, our lives individually and collectively. And as you play that out over time, we, we create norms and laws, right? And that emergence from, from those norms and laws is something we call government. And so you take these communities that are a little bit uh, loose and you, you apply all this structure, right? You start to create these closed loops and suddenly everybody has their place uh which is nice at first and then it starts to feel constraining and stifling and uh you can't get anything done without going through the hierarchy but this uh structural question right this is something that you know is always happening and we we ask ourselves you know where 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 do I belong how do I fit in what's the power right the questions of power are very much these structural questions right what 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 is uh what am i legally allowed to do what power do i hold what's what's allowed what's prohibited uh if we look at all these different uh you know anything that's that, that's classes or political systems uh, uh you know diplomacy is very much uh, about this science is uh an emergence from from this level, right? This is where uh, we we've we've got some uh, some some logic and structure for how we're going to uh, tackle and make sense of reality, 
know, mathematics couldn't happen without uh, this structural gameplay, right? But eventually, we get to the point where uh, we need not to make everything a question of the hierarchy, right? We we've got to be able to accomplish some things for reasons that have nothing to do with our social structure, and you know we're we're looking at what what are the metrics and objectives and again which one's more viral it's hard to say but this is this is where we're at most of us is we're we're in these networks the ultimate network being the internet we're distributing our attention and engagement through this network gameplay right we we only have a fixed amount of attention but the amount of engagement that we have in, in our world is uh, is essentially unlimited if if we know how to apply that uh, engagement well and, and so then you know we break this down into data and uh and and targets goals right and the that becomes something we call production right we live in this world of production uh where our intelligence and our ambition has has created this global industrialization right and this is the world that most of us in the western world are most familiar with and and also are recognizing is in some ways is a little bit out of control right we we've, we've got this uh in, industrialization process that has made consumers out of uh, all of us and uh, it's, uh, you know, these artificial life forms are, are almost starting to, uh, exceed, uh, our ability to manage them. Uh, but this is where we address these questions of, okay, what, what am I doing? What are we doing as an organization? Where are we going? How do we have impact? Right. We love to say this at Google, uh, you know, how, how do we have more in impact? When I was there, that was one of the big things that every time we did reviews, you know, it's about impact, right? And all of our economic systems are basically uh, functional networks. And if you look at the mercantilist systems that were in place that uh, were the drivers of uh, colonialization around the world and the, the kind of basic rent-seeking and gatekeeping uh, models that exist out there. When we talk about the gig economy, there's there's an asymmetric gig economy where there are uh, powerful participants that are organizing the networks and there are weak participants that are uh, um, nodes on that network. Uh, but these kinds of things are, you know, very, very much here and now in Western society. So what happens beyond functional networks, right? What's, what's that thing that gets us to ecosystems? We worship ecosystems, uh, particularly in, in technology. Um, so my take on this is that what we're doing here is we're, we're programming with orchestration and the the viral currency here are purposes when when you start using purpose as a 
as a currency and and you're you're looking at purpose as uh, something that that is um, fungible and then what what you're doing is you're using that to uh, create unity right there's only one uh, but to maximize the amount of resonance uh, that exists now a lot of this is going to start to sound new agey because i couldn't find better words uh, but you can think of the basic idea of all right if i take the smallest possible purpose which is an intention and the smallest possible orchestration which is an arrangement right and i look at that what i'm doing is i'm kind of weaving this fabric of interdependency between me and the other people and institutions and organizations that exist in in my life and over time you know that allows my life to have meaning and that that uh, continual arrangement is is creating this ongoing alignment i hate this word transcendence but i can't find a better one this is how we get beyond the just simply uh, being a, a good robot and having something meaningful get delivered out of all the purpose and orchestration that is driving our self-programming right and so at at this level this is where i start to ask those big questions of myself why am i here what 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 is it that we're supposed to do and why and how do i align how do i align my efforts with your efforts and how do we become unified how do we have more resonance uh how do we contain the dissonance that exists uh between my view of the world and yours and uh this is where things like blockchain uh become possible it's not just simply a network it's an entire ecosystem and uh things like open source and DAOs and uh when we start talking about a gig economy where participants in that economy are of similar power dynamics right um so i call this the symmetric uh, gig economy this uses fractal gameplay and fractal because it starts with a generator and then it's iterative over and over and over again you keep going through this loop and that creates patterns that are self-similar scale invariant patterns that's why i like to call this fractal gameplay so you come back to this this model here so we've got these five different levels of gameplay that are each distinct and as you traverse that loop you have you go from consciousness to cohesion so you're you're conscious, you become coherent, you create organizations or deliverables that are coherent, right? You build a community around them uh, and uh, uh, hierarchies and structures start to form. And and then you, you have these uh, functional networks, uh, things start to execute and you're eventually building up a, an entire ecosystem. Right. And and so that is the 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 model here that kind of ties all this together. Right. And so this is uh, kind of back to 
uh, Sun Tzu and uh, and Wardley mapping and and uh, what what Simon calls his strategy cycle, um, but this is exactly why what we're doing in matters.global is, is trying to map out problem spaces. How do we understand the relation of one problem to another? How does my solution to, uh, to your problem and the way you think you'd like to solve your problem, how do they relate? And uh, the more that we go, and this is, this is why with the, with the maps map, prize we we want to make this into something that's that's more uh formalized right not just graphs but maps and there's an important difference right the, the, a graph doesn't have any kind of orientation to it you can't you can't navigate a graph uh, but you can navigate a map and and going from just simple connecting the the dots in a relation to being able to orchestrate and orient and and act right that that's what makes us fundamentally different from things that are non-human and non-conscious so and, can we yeah. think of because uh, you talked about corporations being like an entity or a person a kind of culture in itself do you i mean and we also briefly said that a startup has to go through each of these processes in order to become a large company like google so would you say google is level five is it in that transcendence fractal state google aspires to be at level five, right? This is where I'd say the value, the, the valley overall, they, they value the creation of ecosystems, right? They, they on a, at a practical level, they like to create networks uh, and platforms for the propagation of those networks. They're really good at level four thinking. They worship level five thinking, but uh, you know, when you hear the term growth hacking, you know, that that's basically you can think of that as a, a level four brain trying to build a level five ecosystem. Can you think of examples of a level five ecosystem that's functional or has been? Oh, there, there's some great ecosystems, right? It's just that they weren't necessarily um, programmed as ecosystems. So, you know, look, look at probably the biggest ecosystem in the world is is the payment uh, ecosystem uh, that you know Visa and MasterCard uh, and you know the other bank cards uh, oversee right that that's the world's biggest ecosystem it's mostly a, 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 a network that has had other networks connect up uh, into it and and we're all bound together in this big uh, ecosystem around which value is flowing, right? And then you, you, you've got the global mon monetary system and, and, and all of that uh, together in this ecosystem. A another huge commercial ecosystem is, is the, uh, uh, you know, the cloud mobile ecosystem. So you've got Google and Android uh, that, that each have their own ecosystems and uh, you, you've got AWS and, and, uh, you know, Google and Microsoft uh, with, with their own 
uh, cloud compute um, networks, and uh, th those together, you know, form this really, really big ecosystem. Um, if if you look at that level, right, we, we have some really, really large scale things going on. But most of the people that are creating those ecosystems, they're, they're operating at the fourth dimensional functional level. Uh, very few of them are thinking in terms of the, the fractal orchestration, the, the scale invariant patterns that will allow them to move beyond simple networks and uh, allow for kind of a, a, a natural um, containment of dissonance and maximum amplification of, of resonance that is the hallmark of, of ecosystem building. So would you say that Meta, by investing in the Metaverse or all the other companies, you know, Microsoft's going into the Metaverse as well, would you say that they're kind of, that's, that's the level five that they kind of want to be part of, but in a way they're they're stuck in a functional at a functional level. Oh yeah, they're they're stuck in a functional world. They understand yeah. all about building networks. They understand all about uh, uh, building communities uh, with uh, the scaffolding, uh, you know, hierarchical sta scaffolding they put into place. They're really good at it. They they can do it over and over and over again. But they don't understand, you know, how, how do they step back and allow ecosystems to form on their own and, and do it in a way that, that's not fundamentally, um, leveraging rent seeking and gatekeeping, right? And, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with the approach that they've taken, uh, from a, a standpoint of, operating on a functional level it's just not as powerful as it would be for instance if, if you look at how much more powerful uh the, the crypto world has been with decentralized uh in, in in propagating right and it's it doesn't have the, the same points of uh of failure right um, it doesn't mean that it's the only way. I mean, they, they, they have their own centralized, uh, e even though they're, they're quote unquote decentralized, they, they have their own centralized points of failures. And, and it's the overall ecosystem that, that involves multiple, uh, coins, multiple blockchains that is, is where the strength really starts, uh, appearing uh, there. But, if you look at how the valley approaches the problem, they worship ecosystems, they talk ecosystems, but they don't have a clue about what does it really, really mean to create an ecosystem from scratch, right? Most of the things they do to build ecosystems are really uh, kind of linear, straightforward network building. Uh, uh, and and often uh, make use of hierarchical gameplay, right? Uh, Facebook and Google are in charge of their ecosystems, and they don't allow others to have power in those ecosystems if if they can avoid it. Okay, so 
you talked earlier on about machine learning and how um, that led you to think of these levels of gameplay because how would you give or teach consciousness, consciousness to a machine in order for it to be part of our society? To me... Well, and you, you, you can't, right? It, 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 consciousness is an emergence. So um, how do you take something that isn't fundamentally embodied like a human and make it into a conscious sentient being it, you 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 fundamentally you can't do that uh at least not not in any sense that we would be able to understand but do you think that in a way maybe this machine learning or the ai can help us kind of skip from a level three level four way of thinking into a level five way of thinking if we in a way well, hand... potentially right first we've got to understand what's the difference between each of these different levels of you could call them uh, levels of being or scales of, uh, of of executing right and as we get better and better at at grasping the difference in gameplay it becomes easier for us to look at how do we frame this out in a meaningful way for, uh, you know, first you, you do it with a corporation or a nation, right? Do it with an artificial life form. And when, when those artificial life forms that are made up of humans, uh, are, when when you start to see the right emergences, then then you're you're going to be able to use those emergences to figure out all right, this is what we've got to apply within the machine learning, right? This is a thing that emerges in a corporation or in a nation, right? And once we understand and have mapped each of those emergences, then we can start thinking about. Um, making the machines do the same. Right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. So, by the way, it doesn't mean that we give up on the techniques that we have. We we just have to recognize that what we're doing is um, is a you know just in the same way that that a virus isn't alive. It's just a snippet of code. That, uh, that that's figured out a way to get itself reproduced in, inside life, right? We, we have to understand there's a difference between uh, what, what we call artificial intelligence or machine learning, right? And the, the true self-programming that, that involves non-zero levels of creativity that, that we as humans and that our artificial life forms known as institutions and corporations have, right? Once we're good enough to be able to separate the two, then we can start getting into nuance. So beyond level five, is does that is there a beyond level five, or there's just um, is so your loop is it goes from zero to five and then back around again as as ideas and culture starts to emerge beyond what we know already well the, the, the question that i have really is um is is five even fully achievable 
right? I, I think the you can't go zero to five very easily. It's kind of like a cliff that, that, that has a big drop off. I like the model that the uh, Kinevan framework uses for this, where they, they talk about things that go from uh, simple to complex to uh, complicated to chaotic. Uh, or I actually, I, I did those two in the wrong order. S sim simple to complicated to complex to chaotic. Right. But it's very easy to take something that's simple and then you fall off the cliff into the chaotic when when you don't have um, when your models uh, not sufficiently complete. What uh, what we end up with is, you know, this 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 fractal is it's not so much a destination, just like uh, functional is isn't a destination in the sense that we're we're never going to be so good at executing we're never going to be so good at building networks that that we fully achieved everything that's that's on that level it's just that uh we we have to build on each one to be able to even understand what the next one is now it, we might get to the point where we understand these emergences so well that we can slice things up instead of slicing it up uh, effectively, uh, five or or six ways because in, in many ways you know zero and five are just flip sides, you know the internal versus the external side of the of the same thing, right? Think think of fractal as also how how do you how do you do the internal gameplay for an artificial life form, right? Now. You could slice this up six different ways and and have something completely different, right? Uh, there are if if you're familiar with this idea of spiral dynamics, uh, which was really popular about 50 years ago, um, the uh, uh, you, you could you know find additional ways of uh, of building on this. I think for me, it's not so much uh, of oh these these are the right five, uh, as as it is saying all right these are the five that I can most clearly distinguish right now, and the fifth one's the hardest for me to get my hands around because it it, it you know it's an ideal that that we're you know that never in human society are we going to be able to fully realize. Okay. Um, ch slight change of subject. You mentioned fractals quite a lot. I've heard you describe what a fractal is. Could you do that again? Because I seem to remember it being really insightful. So the most important thing to understand about a fractal is that it's self-similar. So think about the coastline of the UK, for example. And if I wanted to measure that coastline, I've got a problem because I need to first decide on the size of my ruler before I can meaningfully measure because the answer that I get is actually going to depend on the size of my ruler. And this is a little bit non-intuitive, but if you if you if you pick a small ruler 
what you'll discover is that that coastline, the, the boundary between what's dry and, and what's wet, is much longer than if I have a very big ruler and I'm, you know, say looking, I'm using a map and I'm measuring mile by mile, right? Or e even if, if I'm trying to uh, follow the, uh, the continual curve that exists on that map, right? That, that itself is a simplification. The, the point is, that the thing that is true is that the the, the patterns, how squiggly or uh, or smooth that pattern is, uh, is is what's going to change the least. And in, in fact, if if you if you take a number of measurements with a number of different sizes of rulers, one thing that you discover is that the UK has a fractal dimension. It's um uh one one point i think it's one point two three if i remember it right uh wh whereas sweden uh wh which is glacially um the, the coastline is, is is made through glacial action is uh, i believe one point five eight and uh, so does that, that mean it has a much longer coastline than the u k uh, per per unit of per unit. you know per per linear uh, mile right you 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 take two points um uh, a mile apart right and uh, that that coastline will be um, significantly less squiggly in the UK and and basically if you plot out each of your measurements on a logarithmic uh, scale. You'll see that the slope of that uh, line is is the you know the one point two three or one point five eight depending on which thing you're measuring, right? And uh, the the key thing to understand here is that the, the that boundary is is not a straight line. As you zoom in on it, it gets more complex. Uh, just just like the Mandelbrot set, right? It's a the Mandelbrot set has a um, has an infinite number of points, but they enclose a a finite amount of space. And so it, it's it's infinitely squiggly, and um, we're never going to be able to compute, you know, there'll be no number of computers that will be able to tell us all the points in the Mandelbrot set, but we can we can see the boundary at any arbitrary resolution just by uh, zooming in and and mapping it, right? And the interesting thing is, uh, Mandelbrot set you can express that in nine characters is all that it takes to to write the formula. It's a very simple formula, but the map that it produces is infinitely complex. Right, the squiggle. Uh, the, the more you zoom in, the the the, the more uh, the more it moves around. But uh, there's an inside and an outside, and you can tell uh, whether a point is on the inside or a point is on the outside, uh, and uh, or uh, on the boundary, right? 
it, it, well, the, the tricky part about the boundary is there are some points that you can definitely say are in the set. And then there are other points where uh, they're so close to the, the boundary that as you zoom in and, and do more and more iterations, uh, you, you can, uh, if, if you're, if you're right on the set, but it doesn't converge, uh, very quickly, right? You, you could end up with this very, very complex, uh, map. And all you can tell is that you're in the, the general area, but you're, it, it can become really, really hard to say. Hey, am I inside the set or outside the set? Uh, when, when you're in uh, certain places, right? And th this is where I think most of life is like this. We we like to think of life in terms of the simplified models of what's going on that exists in our heads, but reality is infinitely complex we can't hold all the infinite complexity of reality into our head so we, what we end up doing is framing out something that's simpler and it's it's always wrong we're never going to be right because we can't hold all of reality in our head but we we can definitely say all right this is um more coherent uh or more useful than something else and in relative terms we can make sense of it and so if, if you kind of pull all this back and look at well what's the nature of a fractal well it's it's a looping iterative pattern it starts with a generator and that generator can be an equation like in the manabro set or uh, like the Sierpinski triangle you can just start with a triangle Right. And then, uh, or, um, uh, and, and actually, I got slightly ahead of myself. There's an initiator first, and then you apply a generator. Right. So, in the case of the Serpensi triangle, your, your initiator, uh, is a triangle, and then you drop out another triangle out of, you take the, the midpoint of, uh, e each of those, uh, um, um, uh, lines that forms the triangle. So uh, you, you've got a, a vertex that's being um, uh, that another triangle is being uh, placed right on the, the the midpoint, and you continue to do that with each successive triangle infinitely, right? so and you you end up with something that that has an area right but it's um it, it, it's it's going towards zero so sorry just to, to visualize that because it was a bit hard to follow along are you saying that you start off with a triangle and then another triangle is formed as part of the same shape so it makes a kind of infinite amount of triangles but if you zoom in you, you see a small section of it yeah, okay. So I think I described it more or less. But yeah, um, for people listening, Andy's just pulling up pictures of the Sphinx 
how do you how do you call the person's name again? Serpinski Triangle. Serpinski right? Triangle. So here's here's the yeah. first one. There's your initiator, right? And your generator is to drop out the uh, uh, triangle so, yeah, out of the middle. We can right? describe it. So basically, the first one is just a black triangle. The second one is a black triangle with a, a white upside down triangle cut out of the center. And that forms the new pattern. And then so you keep on doing that pattern re re recursively. And it ends up with some really interesting shapes. I think another really good example of a fractal is a cloud, because that's made up of a, a fractal shape. So if you're very close to it, it, it still looks the same as if you're thousands of miles or hundreds of miles away from it. You still know what a cloud looks like from far away, and you know what it looks like from closer up because it's got the fractal pattern. Um, wow, okay, I'm getting really spun out now. We've got lots of uh, Sapinski triangle patterns being animated on the screen. Definitely worth looking at. So, uh, yeah, so I, okay, so I, I understand a lot more why, why you're talking about fractals in terms of the gameplay because it's a bit like, uh, was it Einstein that said uh, there's the insect that's crawling around on a glass and it can just see its world in, inside of it, doesn't even know which way is up or down. And here's Einstein looking down on everything and he can see the much bigger gameplay, so to speak, or the much bigger fractal pattern. So in a way we're we're kind of we're we're constantly looking at a fractal pattern, but we've see we're seeing one slice of it and actually it goes off in all different dimensions and directions. And we we in order to kind of move forward, we need to understand how to do that and where to do that, um, so to speak. Yeah, and if you if you think about how do we get into our head all these different right, we're we're programming with with neurons basically, and the number of neurons in our head hasn't changed since you know fundamentally hasn't changed uh, in you know, many thousands of years. So how is it that we get all the things because we're now responsible for integrating so much more knowledge than our predecessors? Well, we're effectively using fractal compression. We're, we're bringing all this stuff together in a way that we can regenerate it as needed. Right. And we, we have to understand what are the scale invariant patterns that we're using to context shift from anything to anything. Right? Uh, th th this is, for me, the, uh, the secret to understanding, you know, how do, how do we make sense of what is fundamentally uh, chaotic and impossible to, uh, to, to impose order on? Hmm. And in many ways, you know, what we're talking about is the search for better delusion, right? So, uh, science and mathematics uh, are, are attempting to construct the, the least worst explanation of reality. And we're, we're taking all of the different delusions that, that we've had that are, that are useful 
and we're we're trying to eliminate the those that are uh, most problematic and and in theory we'll we'll be left with those that are most useful mm -hmm. in theory but okay. that, that's the fact you know reality's uh messier Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting point. So we've got this kind of compression algorithm, this fractal uh, code inside our head, which is taking reality and storing it. And then we're able to bring back memories by kind of rerunning the algorithm to, to get back what uh, we think is the right memory, but maybe our algorithm isn't quite right, so we kind of have faulty memories, but it's much better well, having... Nobody has perfect memory, right? Yeah. Um, and those those that have more um, reliable memory uh, just do a better job of integration, right? But anyone that's ever done uh, real studies of, for instance, uh, eyewitness uh, accounts, Right, is struck by how unreliable human memory is, and and how um, how much we remember what we tell ourselves we want to remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or even what other people tell us we want to remember. You know, this... all of this is programming, right? Uh, and you know, where we choose to spend our attention and engagement ultimately has uh, a, a very uh, deep and lasting influence on how we perceive the world, even if we're not intentionally putting our attention and engagement there. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much for the conversation today. I think we covered a lot. Um, and it feels like we could just keep on going forever. So um, I think at some point we're definitely going to need to continue these this conversation on already. And, well, uh, it was fun to kind of run through this, and yeah. I, I always enjoy the opportunity to share. This is something that for me has been uh, an inexhaustible source of curiosity. And I, and I, just I don't know where it's all going to end, but uh, th this is you know this is how i've constructed my narrative loop yeah and and just the conversations that lead on from it are so fascinating as well it really changes how i view the world and how i will build ideas as well into what i'm doing um so thank you very much for sharing that that's really really well thank you it's, it's always a pleasure i i, I really enjoy the opportunity <laughs>